Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. This is Howard Smith, and I'll be your host today, along with Ronaldo Brutico, for our program, New Business Paradigms, Conscious Commentary on Business and Society. Ronaldo, as you all know, is the president of the World Business Academy, and I'm a member of the board of directors of the Academy, as well as a wealth advisor and estate planning consultant with Morgan Stanley Smith Barney. During today's program, Ronaldo will be covering two major topics, uh, along with our lightning round. As always, we'll include questions and comments from you, our audience. We already have a host of questions that we've got received on email. We'll be asking those periodically throughout the morning. Um, and so if you'd like to place a question and you're online, please dial into us at area code 347-989-8946 and hit the pound key. I uh, also do want to mention that next month, September, we'll be pushing, to, at least tentatively, we'll be pushing our call back by about two weeks to the 30th of September uh, due to conflicting travel plans. However, this is not quite uh, fully decided yet, so keep an eye on your emails for the exact schedule of the September program. Okay, again, one of the purposes of our monthly call is to pre- present you with our members and listeners with concrete, actionable ideas. I'm sorry, actionable ideas. Today we'll be discussing current events including a balanced business perspective on President Obama's performance as we head into the congressional election season and also what we can learn from the way other countries like Canada and how they protected themselves from the financial crisis. After our first segment, we'll do an expanded lightning round, which is a series of quick economic insights and comments on major asset classes such as bonds, the dollar, energy, and real estate, uh, with particular emphasis, again, on ideas <coughs> yourself. Today's focus will be on Master Limited Partnerships, or MLPs, as they're referred to. At this point, I'm going to turn it over to Ronaldo for his introduction, and we'll start. Ronaldo, good to hear you, and let's, let's get going. Good morning, Howard. How are you? I'm well today, and you? Great, thank you. I, I'm, uh, it's an interesting time. We we picked this topic, you know, what a couple months ago, and and we firmed it up last month, and I it turned out to be prophetically the right topic given what's about to happen in the midterm elections in the United States, um, and and I'm I think it's particularly uh, intriguing. We we could we could do the rundown in a second on Obama's performance, but uh, don't you think it's fascinating? Uh, how, with all the things that have happened in, to, to ensure that the economy and recovery continues on, uh, moving forward, that there's been so much obstructionism in Congress to stop the recovery from occurring. I know you find it fascinating. Well, actually, yes. I think what we're seeing more than perhaps any other t- time in recent history is the degree to which partisanship and the maneuvering between the parties is creating a logjam in actual activity to get the economy moving again. Uh, Actually, you know, it might not be even the two parties. I think the partisanship you're referring to has always been there. What's gone wacko is this incredible reach to the right. of It's the equivalent of the know-nothing party back at the earlier stage of this country. And the idea that the Tea Party, for example, would, or the Republicans, to have the Tea Party be happy, raise the Social Security Limit to seventy. I mean, that's insane. Uh, the fact that we would be talking about calling at the same time that they're calling for tax relief for the ultra wealthy. It, it's somewhat ironic. It's, it's uh, crazy. I mean, support that tax relief on the backs of uh, senior citizens. Well, and, 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 and the amount of it, the tax relief, uh, the amount of relief we're talking about is probably a six hundred and seventy-five billion dollar deficit budget pack, uh, busting package at a minimum. And, and when you're talking about those kinds of numbers in an economy where we couldn't get an extra $500 billion of stimulus that would have created an unemployment rate 2 to 3% lower, um, I, I just find it, it, it's past perfidy. It's intentionally <laughs> evil. And, and, I, and what's amazing to me is that people don't seem to be watching their own best interests. When I total up the complete amount of stimulus that got through recently, I see $26 billion for basically cops and teachers, which is hugely important, uh, and, and, and direct job growth. I see another maybe $10 billion of the $20 billion that, that BP is going to put into the Gulf in the next year or so. So maybe $36 billion of new stimulus is going to happen with what we've got on the table. And what we need is four or $500 billion if people really want a quicker, job, quicker recovery. 
it's just kind of fascinating to me. And, you know, isn't this exactly what we predicted a year and a half ago? I mean, didn't we say it would be a very slow L-shaped recovery? It seems dead on target, but it brings me actually to a question uh, that, that surfaced in our emails, and I'll reframe it um, because it's dead on this, this point. Uh, recently, there was a bill in Congress that was going to provide funding to local and smaller banks to then feed that money back to small businesses and get small businesses going again. Now, small business—excuse me—small businesses have traditionally been among the core strengths of uh, the Republican Party, and yet it was Republicans that crushed this bill. Um, and our question is, why do you think this happened? And what oh, was well, the motivation? By the way, can I just tie that to one other thing? Why is it that in the financial reform bill, which we really needed, and, and it is even with all of its flaws and warts, the best financial reform we've had since the 30s. I mean, it is, it is quite a step forward. But what about the Volcker Amendment? So the Volcker Amendment, which would have caused banks to stop gambling with deposits and either be a deposit-bearing institution and lend money to small business and, and, and consumers, or go become gamblers but not to be able to straddle the line and basically bring the Glass-Steagall back in some in form. Well, <clears throat> that was crushed in the final bill so that the Volcker Act is virtually doesn't exist at this point. I mean, there's so many holes in it that it, 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 if it takes effect, it'll be 10, 15 years in the future, if at all, and then the effect is minor. Why did the Republicans do that, which would have stabilized the banking system and caused there to be more lending to business rather than gambling? Well, the reason, I believe, is the same reason why they just stopped what you're calling the small, it was called the community bank lending bill. Why did they stop it? Because uh, the Republicans decided, rightly or wrongly, that their best tactic in the face of the economy that was getting better as a result of basically the Bush economic disaster, their best tactic was to become the party of no. And I think that the, 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 the amount of, and I'm only picking on them right now because uh, they're doing such a craven thing with their uh, virtually 100% Republican votes to block everything. So it's the party of no. They really are trying to drive the economy back in the ditch, so that, which is where they left it, so that they can get credit for then coming back into power and, and I guess doing more of what they did in the 90s, which is insane again. And what I'm having trouble with is I understand that people get lost in the financial and economic underbush. What I don't understand is why the business community is getting lost. The business community should be looking at what's been going on and going, holy cow, if these people get back in power, we're going to go double dip will be the best we can hope for. I don't think the double dip's coming right now, by the way, but I do believe that if the Republicans were to take control of the House in the fall, I would seriously consider selling every stock I own and waiting till it blows over. Now, I know there's a, there's a school of thought that says, oh, no, the Republicans come back in, the market will respond favorably, et cetera. But I'm kind of nervous about the real economy, the fundamentals of the economy. This economy was in the ditch worse than people realize. It's calling, slowly crawling out. It's being hobbled as it crawls out. The president is being, I think, justifiably criticized for not fighting hard enough to really improve things and for not taking the fight to where it needs to go in order to get jobs to grow faster. That said, if the same policies, like extension of the Bush tax cuts, get passed and the same blockage and obstruction occurs as we're seeing today, only worse because the Congress changes hands, meaning the House, I believe what you will see is the economy will do a very, very bad dip downward. It might not be recognizable for the first couple of months after the election, but I can assure you 2011 will be a very bad year. It should be. I didn't say assure you. I feel strongly that would be a very dangerous year, too dangerous to be in something as volatile as the markets, particularly with all the other economic data. So I hope people will, will um, recognize their own self-interest in the situation and be very cautious because the political waters are so insane right now. It's almost like I'm attending a carnival rather than watching a national political election. Well, it seems like both both sides have learned the lessons of the uh, Great Depression, which is if you start raising taxes prematurely or cut off uh, federal funding to support growth, that you go into a second double-dip recession. That, that was pretty obvious back in the early 30s. Um, Knowing that, do we see a repeat pattern by the Republicans in this case as the opposition trying to maneuver back into power and knowing that if they, again, 
do everything they can to avoid stimulating the economy before the election that is going to favor them getting back in power. And if they're back in power, do you think that they will again open their own floodgates um, on funding their pet projects and their well, pet I think, uh, sources? Yeah, I, but we know we know just by listening carefully to what is being said by the the Republican Party actually isn't a party anymore. The Republican Party is now a small collection of loosely linked uh, seats in the House and the Senate. Uh, which has become increasingly dominated by this Frankenstein they created called the Tea Party. And in a series of probably six or seven elections, you're going to see this fall, I believe, the Tea Party candidates, which were able to knock out the traditional Republican candidate, I believe those Tea Party candidates will lose. I think that, this, that the extremism of the Tea Party is something that the American voter will, when they pay enough attention to, reject. That being said... That's probably the best chance that the, the Democrats have of keeping the House. What's going on on the Democratic side is there appears to be a serious split within the White House. And I think you see that uh, reflected in Gibbs's remarks a couple of days ago, where literally it's, it's unthinkable. I mean, Gibbs basically was assumedly with the president, knowing what he's doing and approving of it. Gibbs attacked, attacked his own left base. Uh, he attacked the people who have been saying to the president, you're not doing enough, you're not taking these guys on hard enough. And um, the assumption has been always made by those Obama White House that the left would always support the Obama White House because the opposite conclusion would be, you know, back to Republicans and the craziness that would ensue. The problem is that's too rational. That's just like the president, way too rational. And so what's happening is that they're, they're missing, they're miscalibrating the anger uh, and the frustration over the fact that, that, that Larry Summers and Tim Geithner still are controlling the economy and we don't like it kind of thing. There's, it's too rational with regard to the fact that it's emotion that get people to get up and go to the polls in a mid-year election. And if that emotion's not there, whether they agree with Obama more than the Republicans or not, they won't show up. So to me, this, this, this overly calculated rationalistic approach, which I think is the hallmark of the, of the Obama presidency, is actually causing now, I think, serious questions as to whether or not the Democrats can hold on to the House, which I wouldn't have expected uh, even three or four months ago had the Obama White House acted differently. So I know our topic today was an evaluation of the president's presidency. I, I think I want to use this as the bridge to, well, to yeah, expand I was say, it, It's time to plunge into that. So let's go ahead. How do you think he is doing? And how well, do him it, to uh, prior administrations? Yeah, I, I, first of all, I think he will, I mean, this, objectively speaking, historians will record that this president did more in his first 18 months in office than Franklin Delano Roosevelt. I mean, that's quite a statement because Franklin Delano Roosevelt was set an extremely high, high, high standard. So he has done an enormous amount, and for all of the politics that I don't like right now, uh, I have to acknowledge the fact that this one president, was able to get through health care reform that has been stalled since Harry Truman, has gotten through financial reform that's been stalled since Franklin Delano Roosevelt, <clears throat> has gotten through a, um, a $750 billion stimulus bill and spent it properly so we didn't go off into inflation nor into deflation, although the risk of both remains. Uh, he has accomplished uh, a tremendous, a tremendous amount. I, I think... Um, and I noticed there was a story just this morning that the lead general in Pakistan is going, gee, you're, you're pulling out too soon right now out of Iraq. We're nervous, but I think he's going to stay on it, and he is going to pull out. Uh, I believe that there's no question this, the auto bailout has been a singularly brilliant exercise. Uh, notice GF reported record profits this morning. Well, and not uh, only that, but, yeah, exactly. And you know what else? And, 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 and the president's appointed chief, chief executive officer, Whitaker, is going to step down now so they can take GM public, which is exactly what he said he would do. He'd pull his people out when it was time to return to the private sector. But what's even better about that story is what happened to Ford Howard. Ford, who never sought federal money, who never went into the bankruptcy, Ford's CEO, Mullally, has said publicly, if it weren't for what the administration did for GM, Ford wouldn't have made it through either. And this is an industry, Howard, where today, it's amazing, Michigan is in play for Republicans, even though that's the one state you can say for a certainty that Obama saved was Michigan. They're now doing two shifts at most GM and Ford plants in Michigan. 
and, and, and they've recruited an enormous new base of business for the next generation in alternative batteries. Um, they were able to break through the log jam that's kept Detroit captive to the internal combustion engine for the last 50, 60 years, and were able to get hybrids and electric cars off the dime in Detroit, which means that the foreign competitors like Nissan, who will be bringing the, the new Nissan Leaf out next year, all electric vehicle. So all these things happened, and the money that the, that the public put up for the GM and automobile bailout, which was heavily criticized at the time, not only did they get all the money back, they're going to make a profit, and they restructured the American automobile industry in the process. That's brilliant. By any stretch of the imagination, historically, we'll look at it and go, wow, how did he pull that off? Particularly when that, he had that actually brings Republican no. To another question, which I'm going to amalgamate several others that have come in, is given his success in the auto industry uh, and in these other areas, why isn't that page one? Why, why, how is he presenting this to the public in a way that, he earns credit for it, and that people get a positive sense of what's going on in the economy versus a negative sense. Let me respond to that, and then I want to go back to the other part of the thing. I think he did well, the job, because I think there's a stuff, stuff going on at the agency level we should touch on. But let's just look at that question. Why doesn't he get credit? I used to think that he consciously made the choice that he'd rather get the result than get the credit, and that he was laying low so that he could get that one or two or three straight Republican votes he needed because the Republicans had lined up uniformly against him. Now, we have to stop and look for a second. Obama is a guy who apparently carries, cares more about the result than he does about uh, uh, the, the, the circus. So he's basically, we've got to acknowledge, he got the result over and over and over again. He took us out of the worst Great Recession. The Great Recession was clearly on its way to becoming a depression when he took over. And he, he got us out of the ditch, uh, and, and without any inflation or any deflation. Masterful. However, in the process of doing that, he may have forgotten the principal lesson of the presidency, which is first and foremost, it's about the bully pulpit. So he gave up the bully pulpit. He gave up the conversation. Look how he did it in health care. So the left is mad at him because he sacrificed the public option, single-payer system, etc. At the same time, the left isn't adequately celebrating the fact that their pre-existing conditions are gone, that, we, that we're beginning the process of coloring what was the runaway sector destroying the American economy, the healthcare sector. So you have to give him credit for picking his battles, apparently successfully, because the ones that matter, he won. However, in that process, I believe, he lost control of the conversation. And by losing control of the conversation, he allowed the right-wing official drumbeat to dominate the communications to the point where people began to believe their own negativity. Let me give you an example. The jobs report comes out yesterday and says there's more people filing now than there were uh, two months ago or a month ago by 2,000 people. The same report, five paragraphs below, indicates that uh, the average hourly worker went up by, by the highest rate in the last couple of years meaning that the employers have run out of the ability of giving more things to do to the same people, and they're on the verge of having to hire more people, which they slowly and steadily have been doing because every single month more people are working than the last month. Are there enough people working? No, clearly not. But the unemployment rate's not going up. It's slowly edging down. And if the stimulus bill that was asked for, that Paul Krugman advocated, the $500 billion, had have gotten passed, or if the Volcker bill had have gotten through, the Volcker Amendment, either one of those, we'd be at least 1% or more improved in the inflationary column. So I think that the president has sacrificed the conversation, and now that's what's caught him. Now he can't seem to get that conversation back, and he's getting a lot of fire from the left for failing to advocate adequately for, for, for revolutionary reform, for significant reform, at the same time that the left says, okay, yeah, but he did a pretty good job of the four or five things we care about. Now, I think that there's a whole lot of wisdom to be learned at the White House, which apparently has escaped them, or Robert Gibbs wouldn't have said what he said that was so foolish just the other day. And interestingly enough, Obama hasn't caused him to retract that in any significant way. So I think that the president has lost control of the conversation. I think that the corporate media clearly is not pro-Democrat and certainly not pro-this president. And last but not least, Howard, and I have to say this before I go to the agencies, I don't think people can underestimate the fact that the president, in the face of this kind of 
economic climate, which usually does trigger extremist movements. It's always done that in America for the last 200 years. The president's black. And the fact of the matter is people don't feel comfortable, and it's giving them an opportunity. There's all sorts of, 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 of shibboleths. There's all sorts of uh, things they say about the president, his policies. He's a socialist, which is crazy. Um, you know, he wasn't born here, which is even nuttier. You know, all these things that they say are an opportunity for them to vent the basic racism that's in the society right now. The idea that the, the, the right, right, right crazies, and I don't think that they're, they're Republicans anymore. They're the Tea Party right, right is, are really pretty far out there, crazy people. I mean, for birthers, and, and some of them in high, high national office, to continue to keep that alive is a level of insanity that if the American public continues to tolerate it, the American public's going to get what they deserve, which is an economic crash, a political crash, and I would suggest probably even domestic violence. That's what the American public is playing with if they don't wake up and start watching more carefully what's really going on. They cannot rely on the drumbeat of media to fill their heads with cotton batten so that they are not watching what's really going on. I could go on and on about these statistics, how they've been played, how they get played out. You were saying to me not long ago in a conversation that, the, uh, that, that when you, with the market, with the capital markets particularly, if you keep setting up reasons to believe there's a recession, you get one because it's the psychology of the market takes hold, weren't you? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, we do have one question that's popped up on our screen. I want to get to that in a moment, so please hang in there. But let me just uh, reiterate what I was going to say earlier uh, for our audience's sake, since they didn't hear that prior conversation. Um, a lot of people who believe that in the 2000 election, when George W. was first running for office, one of the drumbeats of his campaign, which was happening again September, October, early November, was that we were in a recession. At the time, we were not in a recession. We were coming out of this incredibly uh, strong growth period of the 90s when computerization and technology were boosting productivity all across the economic sector. And during that time, we kept wondering, why is he saying we're in a recession? Well, there's a very simple statistical reason why. One, 70% of the U.S. economy is based on consumer spending. Fully half of that, or in essence 35% of the U.S. economy, is generated by consumer spending in the run-up to the Christmas holidays. If you repeat often enough to the public that we're in a recession and you scare people, fear is a really wonderful tool for getting people to do what you want. People stop spending money. The net result of when you stop spending money is that you have what's known as a negative multiplier effect. Normally, a new dollar coming into a community multiplies its impact on that community five to sevenfold. In other words, it changes hands enough time at enough speed that it actually creates the equivalent of $7 or $5 instead of one. Now, if you convince people not to spend money during the holiday season because we're going into recession, you create that aura of fear and that climate, what do people do? They spend less. And you get that negative multiplier effect, which does, in fact, slow down the economy. And sure well, enough, and, and sure enough, I mean, just, just one more second, Aaron, if, if you go into January, February, after the election, the economy starts slowing, then the president is able to declare, we are in a recession, we must, must pass through so-called tax relief, which in fact was really a stimulus for the top one-half of 1% 1 of the U.S. population, uh, but he got it passed because people thought we're in a recession. We have to take drastic measures. Uh, well, that, and, that, that, and that, that I think point. is what's going on now. We're being talked into fear. Yeah, so I, that, I think fear is the weapon that, that, that the Republicans and the Tea Party, Tea Party have been using. But right. I just want to underscore something you said. Um, small business for four months in a row now has been trending negative in their view of the economy. Now, that's interesting given that the economy is in its, what, seventh or eighth month of recovery. And they're not seeing it because they can't get the loans, <laughs> which the Republicans well, have just shut off. Yeah, the Republicans the shut the loans off. But, 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 right. but the point is that the economy is getting stronger. What, what small business has been doing is it's been using retained earnings to fund itself and growing despite the fact that the Republicans cut the bank deck off. People have to look at these things. I mean, they literally have been growing despite that. By the way, another, another statistic that ties to what you said we should focus on is the American savings rate is holding firm at 6% for the last five or six months meaning we're paying our debt down, because it used to be around 2% or less, 
And that extra 4% of GDP that we're saving, which is a good thing because we were like drunken sailors and weren't saving at all, has come directly out of the spending that would have accompanied a bounce back from the recession. So even though it's a good thing we're saving more, and it's very good for the long run, in the short run, it takes some of those consumer dollars back out so that we're no longer a consumer economy of 72 74%, or maybe at 68% in a consumer economy. Right, and that's now, enough to swing things. But let, no, let's go to that question. The caller is in the 805 area code, and the last four digits of your number are 2965, and I'm going to open up your line now for your question. Okay, you're live. Go ahead. Hi. I think it's fundamental that thought leaders such as yourselves and people in a position that can affect change find some way to be super proactive in getting this information that's being talked about today out to the general public and out to the thought to the national thought media. Because barring that, the, the Republicans who are manipulating the easily manipulated, it goes on and it has an effect to the election, a negative effect. Ronaldo, you want to take that? Well, I think, yeah, first of all, I, I think, and thanks for the question, I think it's at the absolute certainty about the time we live in is it won't be any better than we're willing to work for ourselves. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a time and a place in every human society where the individual has to stand up and be counted. Uh, Thomas Paine at the time of the American Revolution said, there's no time for sunshine, shine, sunshine patriots, meaning we can't just have people that love their country when the sun is shining. We've got to have people at Valley Forge. The, 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 we are now in a, in a psychological culture war. And if, if every single person listening to this call talks to their friends, decides what they can do to help this kind of a message get out because it's rational, it's practical, it's based on fact, not emotion, when they do that, they will be helping change the result. If, if, if we leave it to people just like myself or others who are doing this, what happens is they, the word doesn't get out. It gets trapped, and it's perceived of as a view of a fringe element, even though, um, and, I, and I always say this to people, please go back and look at what we published in the econ forecast three times a year. We always publish it 12 months in advance. Go back two, three years ago, and you will see with stunning accuracy we predicted every major turn in the economy, up and down. We do that for two reasons. One, we want our listeners to make more money and do better in good times and bad. But we also do it because we try to explain to people how the fundamentals really matter, how the, how the, how the drumbeat of the, 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 the chittering and chattering of our, what our, our 24-hour news cycle, which is more about entertainment than it is about information, that is what's destroying America. America has lost its willingness to work hard for what it needs to know and instead has yes, decided yeah. it can be constantly entertained. So if you believe, as you seem to, that this kind of information gets, needs to get out, here's the, here's the thing we always say in the academy. Thanks for the offer. What are you going to do to make it happen? So it's like we, in the, and we, in the way we say it is in the time-honored tradition of the academy, we accept. Go do whatever you can to get the word out, to draw attention, get friends of yours to take subscriptions to Currents and Commerce, our free publication. Get people to listen to this show. Send them copies. Download it and forward it to them. Because what needs to happen is people need to wake up if we are collectively going to transit this particularly difficult period where we literally are in a culture war. And just because culture wars fire thoughts instead of bullets, don't think it's any less deadly. Every major deadly conflagration started with a philosophical bullet, not an actual metal one. Ronaldo, let me add to that, too. I've been in, involved in many, many social activist groups over the years, um, probably more than I can ever count. And one of the rules I've always held as a board member, as an activist, is if somebody comes up with an idea, they don't get to tell somebody else to go do it. You have a great idea, the best reaction is to turn around and say, okay, now you do it or find somebody who will do it in conjunction with you. Um, you can't put these things onto someone else. You have to take personal responsibility for pushing through ideas you think are important, because the only way ideas that are important do get pushed through is when people stand behind them and work at them. Um, I so we appreciate your listening. I absolutely um, agree with both you gentlemen, and I'm a revolutionary and, a, and an activist myself, and I've been an activist in many locations and many times and put a lot of personal and volunteer energy and time into things and been effective in, in different areas. 
with this, I'm not personally in a position to have enough effect, so I'm working on other things that will have a huge effect, and I'll be in a position later on. But right now I'm not in a position to to do work that will meet a large audience, and you guys are, and that's why I said that. I'm willing well, to well we appreciate that. No, we really do. And, but do take... Take me up on the offer of sending this co- this program out to your friends and acquaintances. Get people to talk about. You know, <clears throat> I would love it if people would form a little discussion group between these monthly phone calls, and at that conversation, surface the things that are most important to them, that are practical and real, or that are esoteric and abstract. Either way, and bring those questions to this call, and we'll put them in the crucible of of of, of a introspective, objective assessment and give you back the information that you can use to further influence your friends and relatives. I mean, it starts at, at really at the level of an individual, and so thank you for calling. Uh, and, and just to prove that we are absolutely balanced here, when we swing over, Howard, to this, what the agencies have done right and wrong, I'll start with one of the agencies I think that the, the Obama administration has screwed up with, and we'll go from there to the ones that they've done a good job. But I really I do believe we can be balanced as well as being effective. Right. Actually, let's do move on to that now because we are starting to get a little bit off schedule. Uh, again, thank you for calling in. We thank appreciate you. that. And what was um, your first name? Oh, we lost it. Well, you know, Dan Carp. You're back on. Go ahead. Repeat your uh, first Dan, name. Again. Ronaldo, Dan. You know me, Dan Carp. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Dan, nice. Thanks for your calling in, Dan. Okay. And we do appreciate everything you've done. Um, and keep doing it. Yeah. Okay, okay. Ronaldo. Let's move on to agencies and and. Then we okay. Well, let's take one that I think there. that the administration's done a terrible job at, and that's the, the Department of Energy. Uh, given where we were when the Obama administration came in, given the fact that people were ready for a change to uh, uh, where we took back solar from the Germans and the Chinese and where we were going to really accelerate the green sector, which Obama ran on, he goes ahead and he, pro- he, pro- he appoints a Nobel laureate, which means a guy who's an extremely bright professor, but a Nobel laureate who's so pro-nuclear he can't see straight. And he put in team very, very poor secretary of um, – of interior, um, which I think is fascinating because the, the Secretary of Interior and, and the DOE were in charge. And although, of, for some reason, your connection is is breaking up, so be careful with your, your phone line there. Yeah, uh, what it is, I think, is that someone's probably calling in on this line. Uh, the Secretary of the Interior and, and the Department of Energy together were responsible for bringing you what was a very poor response initially to the Gulf oil crisis. I think in the long run, I think they handled it fairly well with the one question I'm really upset about, which is that they never did analyze the impact of the dispersants, which were used for cosmetic effects. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that the Environmental Protection Agency, which I think the Obama administration did a very good job with, EPA has been convinced that they don't even want to investigate the impact on fish from the dispersants. They're only, they're only investigating the impact of oil globules, which I think is very, very short-sighted. So DOE, Department of Energy, I don't think they've done a good job at all. We could talk about it a lot, but they're hugely pro-nuclear, and they've, done, <clears throat> they've sort of dropped the ball on alternative energy, and they certainly were totally ineffectual in the Gulf. Uh, Department of Labor, I think, um, has done a pretty good job. They've, they've actually started looking at ways to make it easier for employers uh, to combine 401Ks, uh, the rules they released last July. I think the Department of Labor has been a good force, uh, very positive force with the labor unions during the bailouts and the time when labor had to really help lift uh, broken companies out of the ditch. Uh, I think the Department of Justice has been a mixed bag. I think they've done some very good things at the Department of Justice. I'm very concerned that they've they've been less than effective in a number of others. But on base, I believe the Department of Justice serves the American people now and does not just serve the White House, which is what it had become over the prior eight years. Uh, the Department of Transportation clearly has done a very good job. The DOT uh, raised auto efficiency standards and emission standards. So the Department of Transportation started looking at how to make transportation happen rather than how to enrich companies in the transportation business. A real change because there the regulators have started regulating the regulatees. Um, the EPA did refuse to cave in on carbon emissions. Um, they took a comprehensive look, at, and they're still looking at the risks of natural gas drilling using fractioning, uh, uh, fragging, and, and, the, and the actual subterranean explosions of natural gas fields. Um, they, um, they've done a good job on new standards with nitrous oxides, with sulfur dioxides. Uh, basically, I think the Environmental Protection Agency, with the exception of this thing going on in the Gulf where they're taking a little bit of a dive, I think the EPA now really is starting to be the Environmental Protection Agency, 
as, a, as opposed to the organization that was captured by industry that was raping the environment. So I think the EPA, they get credit. I think the Federal Communications Commission, it's a mixed bag, but I think more good things than bad. I'm watching carefully to see if net neutrality really survives the Verizon-Google deal. Uh, but so far, the FCC, I think, is more good than bad. I think the best one, for sure, has been the SEC. The Securities Exchange Commission, uh, under um, Sheila Baird, I think, is doing the best job of anybody in in, in, in all the agencies. Uh, I think that the uh, what they're doing to increase shareholder democracy, um, what I think they're doing for accountability, uh, the beginnings of um, bringing executive salaries under control, uh, I think there's just a whole variety of of things that they've done at the SEC, automatic circuit breaker rules, uh, that I would have really not have expected that agency to change as quickly as it has and as proactively as it has. I think the IRS has gotten better. They're starting to clamp down on international tax evasion by large corporate interests instead of you know, you know, banging ahead on the, the, the poorest of the poor and, and basically the average blue-collar worker, which is where they were focused before. Federal Trade Commission, I think, is much more consumer-oriented than it was historically, um, and I think the Federal Housing Administration is doing a much better job, um, you know, trying to hold bad financial actors accountable. I think the um, the uh, FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, which is still headed by the same woman that ran it under Bush, one of the only good holdovers that really did has made a tremendous difference. Uh, did I say Sheila Baird a minute ago? I think Sheila's at that agency. I'm sorry, not at the SEC. Um, the, um, so uh, I, I'm very, very uh, uh, pleased with that particular agency. I could go down through some of the more minor agencies at this point, but the point I want to make, I guess, including, by the way, I think the Food and Drug Administration has been much more uh, <clears throat> proactively regulating than um, any of the uh, prior years. So net-net, I would say... The federal agencies in the last 18 months have been started to be cleaned up. The most vigorous example, of course, is mining and minerals, which has been completely uh, disassembled because it was so corrupt and split into three agencies so that now we will regulate offshore oil with a separate agency that actually collects the royalties with a separate agency that actually does the safety investigations. Because I don't think you can do safety, collect royalties, and regulate all at the same time. And what you had was an agency where literally the oil industry was paying for prostitution, sex, and drugs for the regulators at Mineral Mining Service. That's all public record at this point. That's not an allegation. That's proven. So we, the agencies at the federal government, which were badly, badly taken over by corporate special interests, and I'm a, I'm a business guy, but to watch what happened, to see the regulatees take over the regulators has been a huge, huge, huge adverse change to the economy and to our society. And by and large, I'd say I'd give them a B plus. The Obama administration has been cleaning those up pretty good. And they are now starting to represent the American public more than the industries uh, that they regulate. Long way to go because we were so far in the reverse direction, and I'm not happy with them yet. But I'm very happy with the direction, and I think that the administration gets a lot of positive, um, uh, positive points for what it's done with regulations. Well, excellent. Now, it is time actually for us to move on, and, and there are no particular questions about the agencies popping up at the moment. Uh, let yeah, me remind Mary, our viewers. Mary, Rob, Mary Robinson is the SEC commissioner. I, I said Sheila Baird oh, earlier. Right. I just misspoke. Go ahead. Sorry. Okay. okay. Uh, just want to remind our listeners, if they'd like to uh, – so raise a question, they can dial in at 347-989-8946 and press the pound key. And again, we'll get you on the air as soon as we can. Uh, but now it's time to move on to our expanded lightning round. Again, a series of quick economic insights and comments on the major asset classes, such as bonds, the dollar, energy, and real estate. <coughs> again, the emphasis is on ideas you can use. And today's particular topic, which I'll turn back over to you, Ronaldo, is on Master Limited Partnerships, or MLPs. Want to tell us what they are and why you've been attracted to them? Um, okay, well, let's talk real quickly. What is it? I mean, that's that's let's, that's always the best place to start. A master limited partnership is what's called a flow-through entity, and a flow-through entity is a, um, a, 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 a like a partnership as people are familiar with a partnership. A master limited partnership means that because you don't have a corporate shell, when you make money. 
you report what you make as the money that was made by the individual holders of the partnership interest, and you flow through to them the cash that that money that you made represents. So typically, and the ones that are famous right now, and all master limited partnerships are famous right now, I am not in favor of all of them. I'm, I believe that master limited partnerships are just an economic device. They're a structure, like a corporation or an LLC. They're, it's, they're, if they're used for the proper purposes, they can make you money. And if they're used improperly, they'll lose you money. So just because it's a master limited partnership or, or MLP doesn't mean it's good or bad all of itself. Let's take one that's good right now. <clears throat> For the last uh, 18 months, roughly, I've been recommending and personally investing in MLPs that control natural gas distribution. Why? Because as natural gas fell in price relative to oil, I correctly assumed that there would be more natural gas used in America, and the more natural gas that's used, the more it has to go through the pipelines. There are pipeline owners, which are master limited partnerships, and those pipeline owners um, are giving dividends off in the 6 to 9% current income range. So when you, when you see that kind of a dividend uh, coming through without any tax, and by the way, you know, I've got to stop. It wasn't Mary Robin. It's Mary Shapiro. God, I don't know why I was going with that name of the SEC commissioner. Mary Shapiro just dinged in my belt on my head here. Anyway, the master limited partnership <clears throat> that, uh, that, that we are – talking about today is the natural gas one because with that kind of a dividend structure six to nine percent flowing through in a world where you're lucky to get one percent for a cd it's actually a great way to make money on your money now what is the risk well the risk is that like other things in the market the value of your master limited partnership what you paid for that piece of the partnership could go down so what you want to watch for are those things that would cause the master limited partnership that you own to go down in capital value equal to or greater than the interest you were earning. Same thing is true with the stock market, right? If you buy a stock and it's paying you a 2 or 3 or 4% dividend, but the price of the stock drops by 10%, you didn't make money there. So how do you watch your master limited partnerships? Number one, make sure you know what industry they're in. And what is the fundamental underlying thing they're doing that makes money? Is that going to be jeopardized or not? If it isn't jeopardized, great, continue to hold until you can get more current return for your money than you can otherwise. If you do think it's going to drop, sell it before the capital value drops, and you will have made a nice economic return before it does so. For those people who would like to own master limited partnerships, and as you know, I don't like to recommend specific ones on this, uh, on this show. But if you go to any broker-dealer, uh, you will find they'll tell you that the largest ones in the national gas industry, there's two basically, and both of those are perfectly good to get into. Now, if you keep listening to this program, we'll actually tell you when we think you ought to sell them. Because we told you they were a good thing to buy a year ago. Would have been nice if you made 6 to 9% on your money the last year. Most people didn't do that. And we'll tell you when we think that they're in jeopardy like I'm starting to telegraph to people about the risk of the economy if the Republicans get control of the House of Representatives. So we will, we will be sending out warning notices about when the overall economy doesn't support master limited partnership valuations. With regard to individual industries, keep listening to the program, because if we were to say to you one day, which we're not going to yet, gee, amount of natural gas we're going to burn in America is going to drop precipitously because the price went up. That isn't going to happen, by the way, folks. Well, that would be a reason to then sell your MLP in natural gas pipeline distribution. And notice it's pipeline distribution I'm talking about, not the ownership of the gas itself, which, frankly, we don't own and I don't believe in because the price of that natural gas in the ground is too low. And I do believe there's an environmental issue which is yet to be resolved about the chemicals being injected in the ground to do the fracking that's going on. So on that clear? natural that gas, that Ronaldo, that's very clear, yes. On, on natural gas, for example, what would be a warning sign that one should be getting out of the pipelines? Uh, okay, well, here's one. Um, natural gas. Uh, anything that will cause the, the price of natural gas to come closer to the price of oil. In other words, if the price of a barrel of oil, which is currently in the mid-'70s, hovering there quite some time, uh, if that were to drop $10 a barrel, it would adversely affect the amount of natural gas consumed, which would mean there would be less gas going through the pipelines, 
which means there'll be less revenue in the MLP and therefore less revenue coming to you and your yield will drop. So now, let me just throw a hypothet- hypothetical out. Let's say, for example, through some miracle of, of change, that we see an enormous growth in alternative energies. And to compete, the oil industry drops the price of oil again. Would that be the moment to be getting out of uh, MLPs on natural gas pipelines? Well, if it happened suddenly enough, see, the, pro- the reason why that might not be the reason to get out is because when you change to, when you transition uh, to more efficient energy systems, uh, it typically happens over a much longer period of time. And in that transition, my prediction is that oil will be reduced in its consumption faster than natural gas for two reasons. Number one, the disproportionate cheaper cost of natural gas for every British thermal unit of energy you're producing. And number two, the fact that natural gas is only half as dirty as oil. So it's, it, it's, 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 it's twice as clean as other fossil fuels. And for that reason, we'll have a longer period of time where it will be preserved as a mainstay or what we call in the academy a transitionary fuel. So natural gas is a transition fuel away from fossil into alternatives, likely to stay the same. Now, I'll give you another example of what could cause it to follow, Howard. Uh, If the EPA were to do its job and really analyze those chemicals, which are going in the ground when they blow up these old natural gas wells in order to get more natural gas, if it turns out that those chemicals really are harming groundwater, that there's a groundwater pollution issue facing major cities, because up until now, most of this has been going on in the countryside, no one's been paying attention. I mean, there's a show that was on television recently where people literally were able to light their water on fire coming out of their faucet. Do you remember seeing that? I did see that, yes. Okay, yes. that's part of what I'm talking about. Those mm-hmm. chemicals in that, in that subterranean basin are so flammable that even when it comes out of your gas, when it's the water coming out of your sink, you can light, when you can light that on fire, you know there's something wrong in the groundwater, right? I mean, it doesn't take a genius. Now, if the EPA does its job and determines that those are really persistent and are harmful, then you're going to see a, a moratorium for public health reasons on the use of some of those chemicals, which would increase the cost of the natural gas being extracted. Would that likely dramatically reduce overnight the amount of natural gas in the pipelines? No. But it would be a warning sign that you should reexamine the investment. If you want to know why it's not being going to, why it wouldn't drop precipitously the use of natural gas overnight, bring it up as a question on this or a subsequent show. I'll be happy to go into it. Don't want to digress right now. I, I would like to end uh, <clears throat> this, if, if I can, uh, when, when we're through, Howard. I want to go back to why the name Mary Shapiro uh, is so important. I, I, I think well, it's why really don't you do that now? Oh, actually, let's before you do that, uh, <laughs> let's just touch on any other particular areas in the asset class you want to discuss today before we move on. We are a little bit behind schedule today. Well, uh, you look, we've been saying we, we've been saying that gold is a sideways bet at best. I continue to think if you don't own gold, don't buy it. If you got it, keep hanging on. But I'm not wild about buying gold right now. I think the risk of deflation is as significant as the risk of inflation right now. Um, number two, uh, I don't like the idea of buying Treasury bonds right now. Uh, as you know, the yields have plummeted to all-time lows just in the last couple of days, even. And the reason is I think that those, those Treasury bonds will not stay at that level, and the yield is so low, why would you be in it? I'd like to point out to people who remember in October of, of 2008 when we recommended uh, the Brazilian real, and we said that the real is at 41, 42, 43 to the dollar. Uh, even in this recent flight to American capital, which happened yesterday, where Treasuries were getting bought up because of the Fed's conversation, the real still hung firm at over 56 So it seems to me the floor on the real is a 56 number. I feel very safe about that. I think there's upward appreciation in the real far greater than there is in the appreciation of gold, most likely. And anything short of 60, I think I'm a buyer in the real, which means that industrial development bonds from Brazil are still a good buy because you can get a 9% current yield plus the appreciation. So I can go into other asset classes if you have any specific ones. Uh, If people want to know about the housing stock in America, in most parts of America, the housing crisis has bottomed out. In many parts of America, it's already coming up the other side slowly. In some key areas or markets like Las Vegas, it hasn't hit the bottom yet. But those are becoming fewer and fewer relative to the whole. With regard to the foreclosure crisis, which is going on unabated, 
the banks are doing a better job of taking their uh, uh, taking their hits, and I think that what you're going to see is that the foreclosure wave, assuming again the Republicans don't get control of the Congress, the foreclosure wave will peak. The tsunami will peak this year. You'll see a progressively better year in 2011, and the meaning a declining foreclosure rate. So those are all the good things happening. Um, and now let me segue to why I wanted to get back to Mary Shapiro's name. Okay. The, the reason that was so important and why I was struggling with it in my mind is there are three women who I think have done a phenomenal job in this administration that need to be singled out. Sheila Barrett at the FTIC, as I said earlier, Shapiro at the SEC, and uh, Elizabeth Warren, who really led the, the Congress into creating the Consumer Protection Agency that the, the Financial Reform Bill is going to create. Now, those three women, by the way, they shared a timing cover a few months back as three quiet women who've had an enormous effect on Washington and the, and the economy. I want to single those three women out because all three are operating in intensely financial sectors. They're operating in sectors which theoretically were completely male-dominated. All three of them are operating independent of Geithner and Summers. All three of them are doing a brilliant job. I certainly hope that uh, Chris Dodd is not right when he says Elizabeth Warren won't be confirmed. I believe that Elizabeth Warren is by far the best person to be sitting in the, in the Consumer Protection Agency. And if she were to be there, I think we'd start getting some real consumer protection out of the financial reform bill. So I apologize to Mary Shapiro for stumbling over her name when, um, when I think so highly of her. And that's why I wanted to keep coming back, because I want to get that right. I didn't want people to leave this conversation not knowing the names of those three women clearly. They're really, we owe them a debt of gratitude. Very good. Again, let me remind our listeners that if you would like to raise a question, hit the pound key. And with that, let's move on to our last topic. Uh, We're winding down here today. And it's basically how is it that Canada protected itself from the financial crisis? There are a few other countries in that group, but uh, Canada was certainly the clearest, simplest example. And what can we learn from that? Good. Okay. First of all, uh, for people who don't know what happened in Canada – not one of Canada's banks ever got in trouble because Canadian banking regulation didn't change under the Clinton-Bush years the way it did in America. So the banks in Canada, Canada basically lend money, old-fashioned banking, whereas the banks in most of the industrial developed countries, particularly the United States, led by the United States, got into this gambling thing where they were doing derivatives and all kinds of other complex instruments because it makes much more money if you own a gambling casino than if you actually own a factory. So the factory, if you will, in quotes in Canada, are the banks. Well, all the major Canadian banks are solid as a rock. They all kept lending. And Canada had one other big advantage besides the fact that they kept the regulatory control over their financial sector, which, by the way, they have better control today over their financial sector than we do after the passage of the federal Reform Banking Act. That's an important thing for people to realize. There's more control and safety in Canadian banking today than there, even after the passage of our bill. Now, it's possible that Elizabeth Warren or someone of equal ability could enhance our regulation and control over the banking sector. But right now, as almost every commentator I know of any consequence has observed, the banks should be extremely happy in America with how little was done to them under banking reform. And yet it is the biggest reform since the Great Depression. So I want to just point out that regulation in the financial sector is not optional. It's mandatory if you want to have a stable economy. Number two, the Canadians, because they have a bit of a, and I say this, and you know I'm born in Canada. I'm a Canadian myself. Uh, the, the Canadians have a bit of an inferiority complex. They look at their big brother north, uh, south of the border, and they try very hard to just keep up. But because they feel that they can't keep up as well as the Americans, they don't have anything like keeping up with the Joneses going on. So the Canadians tend to look at their basic industries, which are extractive, so nickel and, well, you know all the timber, etc. It's a resource, commodity-rich country with a small population. The Canadians don't tend to try to compare themselves with the Americans. They just keep doing what they do well, and they're happy with incremental small change and not hitting the moon. Let me give you an example. Um, Robert Gibbs said that the left wouldn't be happy unless they had health insurance like the Canadians. He's right. It's one of the best health insurance schemes in the world. It's, it's actually a great single-payer system, better than the U.K., by the way, 
Oh, and, and here's the other funny thing about it. The result of that is not only do they spend a fraction of what we spend on health care, the average Canadian lifespan is five years longer than America. So they're living longer and they're having more fun with a better health care system. Those are just a couple of things that Canadians do because they just kind of plod along. And I think what the American lesson here is, let's give up the flash and dash, folks. Let's have a solid incremental recovery. Let's keep it growing so we don't have to go into deflation and we don't have to go into inflation. Let's keep the economy growing by 3% GDP. Let's not try to get it to 5 or 6 Let's accept what we can do and do it well and get over this silly, petty bickering that's going on that's distracting us from the real challenges in America, which have to do with how to make our economy whole again and not to protect the top 2%, even though I'm one of them. I don't deserve I a tax break. I don't I need I a tax break. I never knew you were born in Canada. That's news. Yeah. <laughs> You've heard it first on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, Ronaldo, we're down to about four minutes left in our show, and I wanted to see if you have any final comments you want to make today to kind of sum all of this up at somewhat a, a, a riotous, contentious day. Um, where does this bring us, and where does this leave us going into election season? i, I got to tell you, the, 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 the temptation to say a plague on both your houses, meaning Democrats, Republicans, all three of your houses, Democrats, Republicans, and Tea Partiers. The temptation to say that is enormous. But it's never been more vital that we not fall asleep again. The country went to sleep, and we almost destroyed the entire Western democracies, all of them, the economy of all of them. We can't go there again. We can't let ourselves be emotionally manipulated we can't let ourselves be distracted by uh, bubble talk and infotainment. We need to bear down and be solid citizens and deal with the real issues that are facing this country and this world. I'll give you one of them, Howard, we haven't touched on in this call. Siberia is on fire. Russia's on fire. They've already embargoed one grain crop from the, from the Ukraine and Russia. They're about to embargo the second one. Why? Because climate change is here with a vengeance. We have got to repair the damage we've done to this planet, or billions of us are going to die. Not hundreds of millions, billions of us are going to die. Now, we really need to look at that because some of us, myself included, have grandchildren. Some of us have children. Some of us have nephews and nieces. Some of us have just young people we care about because we'd like to see the spark of their life go on and create some great brilliant flame in the world. If we don't get to the real issues, which is what all this distraction is keeping us from, we will have created a society, a civilization that is not sustainable. We're well on our way to doing so, and it's time to wake up. I really feel like if there's one thing I could say to people right now, what Paul Revere did when he rode from village to village and said, the British are coming, the British are coming, get alert, get alert, get ready. This is the time for all of us to be Paul Revere. We must start looking at the real issues. We have to address them. We, have to, we, we, we cannot have a country... To paraphrase Lincoln, half slave and half free, when I see 10,000 people in Atlanta basically falling over from heat prostration so they could get applications for public assistance housing, which doesn't even exist right now, that's a nation that's half slave. People who can't feed their families, children who go to school hungry, people who can't get decent educations, people who, have, who, who show up at free clinics who are middle class people because they can't even afford medicine. This is not America, and it's not a functioning democracy, and it's not a safe planet to live on. These are the real issues we have to get to, and we're not going to get there if we stay caught up in an artificial battle of words over things that don't matter by people who really know nothing. I guess I know, our audience is often, uh, recall, the people who already converted, who already believe the very things you're saying. In that, this last minute, is there maybe one or two or three things you'd like to tell them that they can do to help further this cause? Uh, again, a lot of these people are activists. They are out there. Um, any any last-minute ideas, though, to share? Oh, I would, like I said, subscribe to the Currents and Commerce because it's the best balanced thing you're going to get on the economy and society. Uh, subscribe to Truthout. It's free to get Currents and Commerce. It's, it's free to, to, to subscribe to truthout.org. It's, uh, you'll get real information, real investigative journalism. It's, it's free to turn on Bill Moyers and listen to what a thoughtful person says. Uh, there's so many ways to get this. There's so much information on the Internet if you're willing to go work to get it. And then remember, if all you do is read it and think about it, unless you're a Benedictine monk, 
locked in an abbey, it doesn't do much good. And even the Benedictine monks of the Middle Ages did their work by creating these illuminated manuscripts that were then distributed as the first books. So even if you think you're a victim of silence in the abbey, you're a Benedictine monk, you still have a role to play in the broader society if you're willing to communicate. We must communicate with each other. We must talk about these things that matter, and we must be willing to hear that some people will laugh at us, some people will curse us, some people will make fun of us. If anything, one of the great things I take from President Obama as his message, and because his, his life is his message, is the man, despite being attacked in the most vicious way that I can imagine of any modern American president, both for his middle name, for where he was born, which was Hawaii, for the fact that he is the first black American to be president, this man has never, ever lost his cool and gotten upset with people personally. He's tried to keep them connected to a higher level conversation. And I really implore us, that's what we need to do. Let's have that higher level conversation. And by the way, for those of you who are going to be in the Los Angeles area on August 31, we're doing an event at Royce Hall at UCLA for the evolutionary leaders to talk about the eight steps we can take to achieve conscious evolution. For those of you who don't live in Los Angeles, you can video stream that same event. Go to the Evolutionary Leaders website. You'll learn how you can do it. Uh, or watch the Academy. We'll be sending out a little bulletin about it in the next day or so. And start combining your voices with all the voices that need to be heard. It's a little bit that each of us can do, but together one drop of information and intelligence, when it combines with other drops, at some point will become a sea of change. Well, thank you for that, Ronaldo. And again, thank you all for listening today. I just want to remind you that next month's call will tentatively be pushed back to the 30th of September. Again, watch for your announcements from the Academy and make sure that you dial in on the right day. Uh, we'll keep you updated on that. And with that note, uh, thank you all for listening. Uh, it's been a wonderful audience today. And, Ronaldo, thank you as well. Have Thanks, Howard, for the call. We say good day. And, and thanks to all of you. Okay, bye-bye.